Um, <laughs> that do people want to talk about Shabbos, or do you want to talk about Hanukkah, or do you want to talk about both? What, what do you feel talking about? Don't ask me. I, I didn't prepare anything. I'm just waiting to hear what you want. Hanukkah. Hanukkah and Shabbos. Yeah. So, Hanukkah, a little bit of Shabbos, okay. Well, Alina, you have like you had enough Hanukkah. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just have never got enough Shabbos. You never know, You have a whole year. Start it on Tuesday. You'll get more of it. No. <laughs> <clears throat> so Hanukkah is a wild holiday. Hanukkah is um, one of my favorite holidays. And I talk about that, I say that about every holiday, but I really, when it comes to Hanukkah, I have a very, uh, I love the Torah of Hanukkah. There's a lot of Torah about Hanukkah, and, and that's essentially what, in many ways, what Hanukkah is, uh, represents in the language of the rabbis, in the, in the world of the rabbis, in the, in the universe of rabbinic thought, Hanukkah is, um, is Torah Shabbat Peh. Meaning the oral law, the law of the of the of of that which can be only transmitted through uh, from the mouth to the ear. It's specifically a holiday that is uh, about the f- elevation of the ear over the eye and the fixing of the eyes. In that it's a triumph of Shema Yisrael Adonai Lohinu Adonai Echad. Listen here, understand that which can't be made visible but which is known is greater than that which is visible and appreciated. The triumph of, in, this is all within the rabbinic, again, it's a construction of the rabbis. It's some, there's some truth to it, there's a lot of truth to it. That the, between the world of Athens and the world of Jerusalem, as someone once said, there is, in very broad strokes, there is this difference between what one would call Greek or Western thought, and um, and the thought of of the ancient Israelites, the, the Hebrews, and one could, in very broad strokes, make the distinction between the eyes of the Greek world and the ears of the Ju- of the Hebrew world of the Israelite world. That there is um, there was a focus in Greece on form on the perfect. In Greek philosophy, it was perfection and being uh, were antithetical to imperfection and becoming. Becoming implied lack in being. If something had something yet to complete, it was incomplete. If something changed form, the changeless was perfect. That which changed was imperfect and in some way uh, less divine. And so form was everything. And so the Greek form, the form of even the forms, as Plato described them, not only in this world were there forms, but there were forms, these forms below were a facsimile, they were a replica of great forms that were unseen forms. And Plato would have us contemplate the forms as if you have an outer eye and an inner eye, which is true to some degree. But the transcending of the forms 
It's Plato too, but and his students, but in Greece it was about the form. And so, in, again, according to Chazal, our rabbis, the sages, the wisdom masters, if you will, that the Torah Shebechtav, Hebrew wisdom can be divided into that which is visible and that which is spoken. That which is written down and writing itself is, is um, seen by the rabbis as a, um, as important and something that everyone can share in. But Tarsha Baal Peh, the, the oral Torah, the, the, the interpretation, that which is inflected, that which can't, you know, text messaging is, is only, you know, <laughs> we all know what happens when you, when you live only by text messaging, right? How many misunderstandings happen. Were you yelling at me or were you just saying it, you know? It's, all, it's like, was that a period? Was it a comma? Was there a breath between? What was that? Was it emphatic? Was there irony? How are we to understand that sentence? And so the rabbi said, the rabbi claimed that the whole world didn't have access to Torah Shebechtav, to the written Torah, the Bible, until the Greeks came. And the first translation of the Bible is by the Greeks. That's what they claim. The Septuagint, which, is, which has its name because 70, 70 elders were taken and were, were told to translate the Bible into Greek. From, there's no Aramaic in the Bible, young lady. So what are they translating from? What's the Bible written in? Hebrew. Yeah. yeah. That's a basic. You have to know that to get into the class. Yeah, you got to get out now. You got to leave. And anybody at home who's listening, if you don't know the Bible is written in Hebrew, I'm telling you. God forbid. God forbid. You're all invited. The Bible is written in Hebrew, which is the language our, the ancient Israelites uh, lived in. And, well, and, right, so, so they translated from the Hebrew. There is actually Aramaic. I'm wrong. There is a, a one phrase of Aramaic in the Bible, but there see, there you, there, there you go. There you go. There you go. Apology accepted. My apologies to anyone at home who was thinking that. So um, the, the, the Greeks... Uh, <laughs> So, the, so they, like yeah, yeah, a little bit of Purim Torah. <laughs> so the Greeks translated, according to the, at least according to the Talmud's rendition of this, so the way that the rabbis remember this story is that, they, or they tell the stories that they brought all the elders into into rooms in separate rooms and they had them translate the Bible into Greek, and they all translated exactly the same way, and they even translated the, the confusing parts, right? Like for example, what's the most confu- maybe the most dangerous phrase in the beginning of the Bible for those when it says let us make man in the plural, right? So even there they translated it the right way. So there's that is the written Torah. And according to the rabbis, great, the Greeks could have access to the written Torah. But the oral Torah was something that specifically um, is unique to the experience of the of the Jews who are who are listening deeply to the Torah, and so in the rabbinic mind, the victory on Hanukkah is the way that they 
they also they neutered. They 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 minimized the military victory because of course there was always a tension between the rabbis and the militants. And essentially, Hanukkah is a, is a military victory. Um, but for the rabbis, it was the victory not in their attempt to to soften the militant quality of the Hanukkah holiday. It became a victory of the oral Torah, meaning the unique inner conversation that we are all having about a given text. In other words, Jewish culture. Because at the time, that's what Jewish culture was, the lower left in, Kil- in Wilbur's world. So the intersubjectivity of, Jewish, of the Jewish conversation about our shared constitution, our shared narrative, our shared stories, our shared myths, that they can't get. We know what it means when the, te- when the text goes like this. We know. We know what the inflections of God's Torah are. So it was in essence the victory of the interior over the exterior. Right? The, the victory of the, the hidden over the visible. You get where I'm right. It's that victory. So that's the first thing I wanted to say about Hanukkah. Um, and what's interesting about it What's really interesting was that it was like like, one of these sounds is not like the other. Um, And what's really interesting is that if you read some of the Torah about Hanukkah, you really get a sense that because of the victory of the inner over the outer, of the invisible over the visible, of the ear over the eye, that that's the reason the rabbis give for Hanukkah not essentially appearing anywhere in any written form. I mean, if you ask somebody, where's Hanukkah in the Torah? It's not in the Torah. And it's not even in the Oral Torah, which, of course, was written down. Right? The Oral Torah is written, because we have it as the Mishnah and the Talmud, which is, an, which is, which is its own thing. How did, you know, how did that happen? But it appears in a very, very terse, very short piece of, of Gemara, of Talmud, in Masechet Shabbat, in the tractate dealing with the laws of Shabbat, where the rabbis are discussing which wicks and oils are permissible and prohibited for use of lighting candles on Shabbat. Clearly there's a connection between lighting candles on Shabbat and lighting candles on Hanukkah. It appears there. And it appears as kind of like a, like a, a, a burp. So you can be a little bit crude about it. It appears like a, as an afterthought in a conversation about Shabbat in the middle of a conversation about Shabbat and about the different wicks and, and, and what substances and which oils one can use and so on, my Hanukkah, all of a sudden, Masechah Shabbat, my Hanukkah, what's Hanukkah? That's where, that's where it appears. It doesn't appear as a Mishnah. doesn't appear... It's in the book of Maccabees. The book of Maccabees was never included in the Bible. At least not in the Bibles that we have. So we really don't know what Hanukkah was. But we have a story in the Talmud. In other words, the only place that we have a description of a holiday that would become a holiday of that which can't be written down is in the Talmud, in a very elliptic and very obscure place. It says a little bit of a story. It doesn't even give a full story. It says it was once when the Greeks took over Israel and they Hellenized Israel and they prohibited Jews from practicing their religion, that 
uh, the Israelite, the Jews rose up and they retook the temple, which had been defiled by the Greeks, who had set up various pagan statues and other things and had done all kinds of pagan rituals and rites within the sacred space of the Jewish people. And uh, we retook it and we found one jar of oil and um, we lit it. And from that lit jar of oil, it lasted eight days. And then it goes into a whole thing. Talmud goes into a legal conversation about how to light the candles of Hanukkah. She, as I said on Shabbat, should you light them from eight to one, which is this, the theory of Beit Shammai, or should you light them from one to eight, which is Beit Tila, which is how we, that's our custom. So that's it. That's it. That's the whole Hanukkah. Simple question. Uh, on Friday, Arab Shabbos. You light candles for Hanukkah, Hanukkah first, and then you write Shabbos. And then on Shabbos, you got to just wait till Until Shabbos is over, and then you can light from your Havdalah candle until... Otherwise, what time do you normally light them? Okay, it's a good question. Yeah. So, we're supposed to light the candles of, Shabbat, of Hanukkah <clears throat> around the time when the most number of people are in the shuk which is towards the evening part of the day. It has, it's a very public ritual. So people who light the Hanukkah candles or Hanukkah menorah or, or plug it in and on, leave it on their, on their dining room table, it's not exactly what the rabbis had in mind. They wanted there to be... Um, they wanted to be um, a public space and they wanted the Hanukkah candles to be out in the public space. And so if you go to Israel today, you can see that some, in, on, on many homes in Jerusalem, especially on the outside near the gate, there's actually, um, into the wall of the gate, there's actually, um, uh, it carved out a space for a menorah where you can, which you can actually place a menorah in the wall of the gate. There was, there is a, the, the, a piece of Hanukkah which is to bridge the inside and the outside and to bring in that which was outside into the home. In many ways, in the construction of the rabbis, Hanukkah becomes a mini temple in the home. And just as we lit the, the menorah as a symbol of the, of the triumph of the light of Hanukkah over the darkness, what was considered the darkness of Greece, or what Greece represents in rabbinic thought, not literally Greece. I have to always say that. Because Greece might be very beautiful, it doesn't, you know, just as Egypt might be very beautiful. But, um, Greek represent was for the rabbis was representational art. It was a facsimile of the thing itself. It wasn't the thing itself. It was always one or two steps removed and seeking beauty in that in that posture of transcendence vis-a-vis reality. And for the rabbis, they they thought that that was a darkening of the eyes. Um, and they literally called it. They called Greece. Wow, a lot going on here tonight. Like, is it me or is it like what? I know it's the radio. It's not me. I know I'm. I know I'm talking. I'm not making that radiator noise, but it's the radiators and the ambulances and the. <laughs> How are you guys staying awake? That's what I want to know. No problem. Okay. So here's the thing. One of the midrashim says v'choshech al home that when it says in the Bible the first chapter of Genesis, and it was dark in the face of the deep. Zuyavan. That is Greece. That they darken the eyes of the Israelites. 
and you hear the, the language of the rabbis, the eyes of the Israelites, that, and then they asked when, and they said when they, when they translated the Bible. So the translation of the Bible is, is saying, here's a word. The word is choshech in Hebrew. How do you translate that? Darkness? Is darkness the same as choshech? Yes, but... Because in the Hebrew, right, choshech, huh? right? So in Hebrew, the word choshech is made up of the same letters as the word in Hebrew for forgetting. Lishkoach, shichicha. So okay, not all of us are fluent in Hebrew. Okay, no problem. We have to read something. Okay, no problem. But trans- a lot is lost in translation. Shechashchu name shel Yisrael, thank you very much. Shechashchu name shel Yisrael is that the Greeks wanted to translate life. And that in that moment, in that, in that moment of translation, where you represent one signifier with another signifier, even if it points in the same direction, it's not the thing itself. And a lot is lost in translation. So the rabbis were very, very, very strong on saying that, at least for them, Greek culture and the Greek desire to supplant the Jewish culture with, with a, a, a uniform aesthetic, a uniform beauty, a perfection, all of those things, perfection, translation of the Bible, the removal of distinct cultural features of Jewish life, or all of them were the darkening of the eyes of the Jewish people. And so as a, a counter to that, we take the menorah. You can't have a symbol that is more expressive of, the Jew, of Judaism than the menorah. I mean, when Israel went to, when the modern state of Israel went to, to create its own symbol, they chose the menorah. The, the candelabra was, was very much um, a feature of, temple, of the temple precinct and of the temple society and the cultic rite. And so they said, take this menorah, take this candelabra, which is burning with the oil of that one jar, we'll get to that one jar in a little bit, and place it in the public area but still have it be in your private space. As if to say, first of all, it's radiating from inside, right? That the inside of Jewish, the Jewish culture is the inside of the shell of what they thought they were grasping. And they couldn't destroy the inside. In the rabbis, and for the rabbis, Hanukkah is, is, a, is an incredibly uh, potent holiday, but not because of physical survival. We were never in danger of being killed by the Greeks, say the rabbis. But what was endangered was the Jewish spirit, right? That there was a sense that that we could become Helen. We were we were we were Hellenized. We became Greek. And I, I you know, if if we were in, in a certain traditional setting, we'd say that America and certain American capitalist values and market values, secular values, are even more dangerous to Jewish survival. Essentially, that's what's been happening over the last two months with the Pew survey, when it came out, the survey of all American Jews essentially was making a claim that Jewish life in America, as we know it, won't exist in another 30, 40, 50 years. That the numbers are dwindling, and the more intermarriage there is, the less Jewish identification there is. It's very, the numbers are really astonishing. And the more you look at the numbers, they're very, very depressing. 
I know I've been a little bit flippant about it a couple of times in public, but the numbers are very are shocking. So one could argue that um, that that Hanukkah is the quintessential holiday for for an emphasis on an American Jewish identity, Dafka specifically. And maybe that's it's such an interesting thing. It always coincides with 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 Christmas here in in. in there's always that conversation in our culture about the, the, the public religious face and the private religious face. And are, is America a Christian country? Is it, a Jew, is, is it not a Christian? Is it a secular country? And all of that. It plays itself out in very public ways. You know, and, and it's really interesting that some of the larger fights for, for religious freedom have happened around whether we can light a Hanukkah menorah in public. Because that's essentially what we're supposed to be doing, is lighting a Hanukkah menorah in public. You know? And it, and it triggers people like, oh, is this too Jewish? You know, is it too Jewish for me to light my Hanukkah menorah, you know, in, in my window? Is it too Jewish to wear my yarmulke in public? These kinds of questions that come, on, uh, come up around, around Hanukkah. And essentially, it's not about truth, but it's about being able to feel free enough in the particularism uh, that, w- that we inhabit to be able to make it, to say, it's beautiful, and I own it, and it's mine. And that's what the oral Torah is in so many ways. It's like, um, anyway, stop there. Karen. I was just curious if there was a story or stories around the Greeks asking these, if they asked sure. or if they forced or how they went about getting these 70 elders to translate the... Oh, that story around the Septuagint. Yeah, the Septuagint. No, I don't know enough about it. I know the story from the Talmud. Yeah, it was a day. It was in the Talmud. Was it's it not during that time, that Hellenistic time. Yes. Well, they were taken to Alexandria, which was, of course was a Greek, which is a Greek colony in in in, in Egypt, right? And uh, and it was done there. Um, the story of the Talmud is that it was a, a miracle happened that they were able to translate. The right words that looked like, in other words, they were testing to see if they would have the the same translation, but they all translated the things the same way, so they knew that it was authentic. So it was a test. It was a test. Of sorts. Yeah. Yes. So this story is obscure. It doesn't have the weight of like Masada or other reclaiming of temple situations. It's why? Why is it so like? It's not that obscure. In the Septuagint, it's a very, it's, it's very well known. I think Masada got, had a good media, had a good marketing team. <laughs> no, I don't know. Masada has a very, um, I mean, over the past. I mean, was this an uprising? Know, no, no, this wasn't an uprising. It wasn't. Oh, Hanukkah was. Yeah, yeah. Hanukkah was an, an uprising. Right. Yes. Uh, so why isn't the Hanukkah story right. as well known? Right, right. It's pretty well known. We have a whole holiday for eight days. Right, but but it's hard to find in the books. I mean, it's yeah. hard to find out, you know, to, like, tell people. Yeah, no, we, know, we pretty much, I mean, even though the rabbis did a good job making it into a religious holiday, and, and certainly um, there are a lot of scholars that, that, that would like to say that the reason why it's eight days has nothing to do with, the, with the, the intention of the rabbis was to create a religiously meaningful holiday out of something that was essentially, um, had nothing to do with a cruise of oil. Um, historians would want to argue that, that we had missed Sukkot that year, and Sukkot is, of course an eight-day holiday, and so, because we'd missed that, and then we'd reclaim the temple around 
Kislev, which is three months after Sukkot, two months after Sukkot, we then belatedly had an eight-day holiday called, and called it Hanukkah, which meant rededication, but it was essentially a redoing of Sukkot because we had missed Sukkot. So that's one plausible reason why it's eight days. But the rabbis didn't care about what happened, as is usually the case with, with myth and fanciful history. The rabbis were interested in constructing a holiday, and they layered it with so much meaning and so much beauty that it itself became a very, be- it's a very beautiful holiday. And so, even though we pray, I mean, it's very clear that they, they didn't completely erase the militant, the victory of the military, that this was a military victory. We sing Al Hanisim Yalapurka, and we sing a particular prayer um, that was instituted for Hanukkah, and we say, Rabin biyad me'atim, Tameim biyad tahorim, the many were given into the hands of the few, the impure were given into the hands of the pure. Um, so there's, there's, the language of victory is still present. Mm-hmm. But, but the great victory, though, the great victory for the rabbis wasn't just that we, de- that we defeated the Greeks. The great victory, and they weren't Greeks, by the way, they were, they were Syrian Greeks that were, that were there as, as part of the, of, of the larger Greek empire, um, and, and so the governor and so on, and, and the troops that were, that were watching over the city, but the greater victory for the rabbis was that we found this jar of oil, this crazy jar of oil that had not been defiled. Which becomes, of course, you can imagine what that becomes in Jewish mysticism. Finding a jar of oil that can't be defiled. There's one jar of oil that can't be defiled. It must be, it must be your neshama. It must be your soul. And it doesn't hurt that the word neshama has in it the same letters as, as oil, Hashem, the oil. So that the oil, and that there's a verse in Proverbs that says, near, near Hashem nishmas Adam, yet your soul is God's candle. And just as the flickering of your soul will never, it's really the pilot light of you has never been turned on or off. It's always been on. Your soul is eternal. So when you pass from the physical form, that same jar of oil is tehorahi, it's pure. It's munach b'chosamu shel kadosh baruch hu. It shel kohen gadol. It is the the seal of the high priest. So we have all that going on. So Hanukkah moves from being a military victory to a victory of Hebraic culture over Greek culture. It represents the hidden light that can illuminate the darkened eyes of translation. Right, that's that the illumined eyes which really are more like illuminated ears. Right? The eyes that can see also can see be, the way that ears can hear beyond surfaces. So that's all there. And then you have the number eight. And what do you do with the number eight? The number eight is so is also the letters for soul. Nishamash, Mona, Shemen. See the way the whole thing, like a pointless painting, you know? The way they start pulling it together, these themes. So the number eight is always signifying in our tradition that which transcends the natural world. If the natural world is the number seven, the number eight is beyond the natural world. And of course, one of the things that the Greeks very explicitly prohibited was circumcision, which happens on the eighth day, which is itself a marker of that which transcends the physical world. So, um, so the number eight 
is that um, it's also the, it's also the number of of garments that the high priest wore on the high on the highest and holiest day of the year was eight garments. There are supposedly eight strings on the harp of King David in the world to come. The number eight is always like pointing to mystery. Mystery. Eight. Eight is always pointing to mystery. Eight house, huh? The eighth house is mysterious. Eighth house in 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 astrology is also the mysterious. The Scorpio is transformation. And, and the occult, and of course it happens in, the holiday itself happens at the end of Kislev, which is Sagittarius, but then it, it moves into Scorpio. It moves into the next month. So it's also it's participating in both of them. So, more on Hanukkah? There's so much more on Hanukkah. I have another question. Yeah, another question. You know, at the end of the Book of Maccabees, there's a whole nother war going on between, within the Jewish nation, right? And of course, well, not of course, but we don't really celebrate that or hear about that. Um, and, and what's the significance of that? And where do we go from this military victory over, you know, Hellenism and <coughs> the whole idea of what happens in this eighth day and and what's going on with rededication of the temple, and then this incredible self-destruction internally. What's, how, what do you make of that? Because it always confuses me. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it, it's, it's really, um, Jewish history is, you're looking at it both historically with one eye, and then with the other eye, you're also looking at the inner place. So, it's hard to make sense of that in the sense of the inner place because on the inner plane, it, you know, these warring factions and the sectarianism and the, and the fighting, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it, the truth is that, that it, it was never perfect and it, and it still isn't perfect. And um, there's a wonderful new book that just came out called My Promised Land by Ari Shavit. Shavit. It's a great book. And uh, in it, he's painting a really balanced picture of the Israelis and the Palestinians, the situation there, really balanced. And you think to yourself, it's always been like this, internally with Israel, in every society, I'm sure. There's no mythic time when everybody was getting along and it was all great. Even in the Bible, you had Moshe and you had Korach, you had Abraham and he was arguing with, the, with, the, with Avimelech. I mean, there's always factions and, and sectarianism. And certainly in the time of the sec uh, both temples, it wasn't, it wasn't smooth. But, on the, you know, that doesn't detract from the inner beauty of, of this, of the holiday, in a way, for me, personally. So that when I like, when I like Hanukkah candles, I'm really... One of the most beautiful moments in the Hanukkah candle lighting is that for the, for the Rebbe's, they used to sit for a half hour after they lit the candles and just stare at the candles. And um, it was supposed to do a tikkun for the eyes. Supposed to fix the eyes, help you cleanse the eyes. And we say, you know, after we light the candles, we say, that these candles are holy, and we have no right to use them instrumentally. You can't use Hanukkah candles to read by, you know, 
when the original purpose of lighting Shabbos lights was in order to keep light in the house. But you can't use Hanukkah candles for that. You're not supposed to turn off all the lights and just have Hanukkah candles going and then read by them. Right? But, but we don't have... We just look at it. It's like, can you look without violence? That's the question. So is there no connection between it, or there is a connection? I, I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure if there's a connection between the fighting at the end of the Book of Maccabees. Um, and I don't know what happens after the eight, you know, after eight. Yeah. Like, you know, what happens after Hanukkah is over? What happens when you close? I don't know. But one of the things that, that is really powerful is that they have this a lot in, in postmodern literature, about the, and also in, in studies of colonialism, imperialism. You have the violence of the eyes. The violence of the eyes. If there's something about um, the way that we look at the world where um, <laughs> where our eyes are um, we're, we use our eyes as a mode of possessing, of interfering, of grasping, of owning, of changing. That's often, by the way, in the language of the rabbis, they often use the terminology of the eyes to describe personality traits. Someone who looks at people without judgment is called someone with a nice eye. And somebody who looks at people and who's very cheap is called, he has a very narrow eye. Bitsarut ayin. People are sleepy. I'm looking around. No. No, I, I can see the people are sleepy. Is it the room? Should we get up and take a deep breath? Should we go to Starbucks? <laughs> Should we have the class at Starbucks tonight? Let me ask you, Shabbos, uh, you had a lot of used Hanukkah gout? Uh... <laughs> On Shabbos? Chocolate. I know you're not supposed to use Listen, Max, everybody knows that whatever you use turns to chocolate anyway. Uh, <laughs> you have the Max touch. Uh, there you go. So whatever you touch is sweet. So the eyes are very important, everybody, especially on Hanukkah. So if you get a chance when you light the candles, if I were you, just to look at the candles for five minutes, just for five minutes. You don't have to do Just sit there for five minutes. Five minutes. If you have kids running all over the place or you have uh, spouses or partners running all over the place, okay, 30 seconds is okay. <laughs> it's like flash heating, you know, like flash heating. It, it boils it really quickly. So in Shabbos candles, many people cover their eyes. That's a whole other thing, but yes, that's true also. But with Shabbos candles, you don't say, we don't say, in we don't say that we are not allowed to use them. That's why we originally created Shabbos candles to begin with. Was in order to that for shalom bite. They were they were a means to an end. The end was that in a, in a dark house, it's not it, that doesn't lend itself to a to a peaceful evening when you're eating in the dark. There's no electricity, and uh, passing hot soup or or running into each other in a dark house wouldn't make for a peaceful evening. So I said, Allah chavat Shabbos, for the sake of having a peaceful house, shalom bayis, we'd have we'd light candles. Of course, there are deeper meanings behind lighting the candles. But on Hanukkah, you don't light them for any reason. <laughs> you only light them 
you only light them in order to to be mifar saint in order to to publicize this this the miraculous and to make a, a shidduch between the outer world and the inner world is to combine them now there's a lot of a lot more stuff we could talk about i want to shift gears talk about another piece because it's 36 minutes and i have an hour right an hour and a half but last half hour we'll talk about yeah last half hour we'll talk about shabbos not even that. We have 40 minutes because we've been schmoozing. So, dreidel. <laughs> so listen to this. <clears throat> and I dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. I made it. Da, da, da. Oh, da, 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 da. Okay. Had a little dreidel. When it, okay. So, so, so. <laughs> Who cares when the dreidel, where the dreidel's from? There's a lot of stuff on when dreidels were, when was the first time the dreidel appears in the Jewish scene and who did it. And there are equally outlandish statements from, from uh, Hasidic rabbis about how old it is. It's probably sometime in Germany somewhere. And um, the dreidel is the quintessential multi-perspectival instrument. It's a symbol of being able to hold multiple perspectives simultaneously without letting any one of them predominate. When a dreidel is spun and it's moving, as long as it's moving, right, as long as it's oscillating, as long as it's, it has a, a sufficient vibrational frequency, one can hold all four sides together without having to land on them, you can see all of them from above. Right? The, seeing them from above is very important. Like the perspective that can see the dreidel moving can see all of the, the various sides of it. But once it slows down and fragments, you land on one side. And so the Rebbe's say it connects very much to the Joseph Saga. How does it relate to the Joseph Saga? Because you can well imagine that in the world of Joseph, he felt very much like a, a spinning top. You know, at one point he was his father's favorite, and then he was in the pit. At one point he was dressed in fine clothing that represented his status in the family, the child of the beloved Rachel. And then he was naked by Yafshitulo. And then from the pit he rose up, and he became the second in command to his new father, Potiphar. And once again, the jealousy, and something happens, and he's thrown again into the, into the pit. And then the third time, he's lifted up again, and this time he remains. But at each point in his life, he could have said, you know, it's over. And at each point in Hanukkah, this is why I think Beit Hillel wins, is that you would never know on day one or day two how long the miracle will last. Because at the end of day two, you, you, they were thinking, holy, what the... We started off with this cruise. It had enough for one day, and now we got another one. Okay, Joe, come, Joe, you got to see this. <laughs> you get, it's going again. And then it's done. Back in the pit. You don't know what's going to happen. Then the third day, whoo, another miracle. Every day. 
Just like Joseph. Every day was a pit, and there he was. But Judah, <coughs> Yehuda, Yehuda is the one. Yehuda has redemption before Joseph does. Joseph is on the way down to Egypt in the Bible, in chapter 37. And he's in the back of a caravan full of, of incense and, and sweet-smelling uh, spices. Which, by the way, some of the Muslims farms say that, you know, that even if you're, that it's, it's graceful, God gives grace even on the way into great suffering sometimes, that Joseph, at least on the way down to Egypt, he wasn't in some smelly, he could have been like in a cattle car, God forbid, like in something full of dung. Instead, he was in this sweet smell. He was like in a little, he was like a little mini Arab shook. So he's on the way down to hell, and his brother Judah also goes down to hell in the next chapter. And we inter- we I talked about this in Shul. They interrupted the Joseph narrative to to bring us the Judah narrative. And in the Judah narrative, we actually see the full the full progression. We see the full progression of the entire Joseph narrative in the in the in the one chapter of the Judah narrative. I've never said this before. This is something that I was just thinking about today. And, and I, I think it, it bears out if you go back and look at the text. If you look, so what happens to Joseph? Joseph in chapter 37 goes down to Egypt. Right? He's, he's in the back of this, this caravan of Ishmaelites who sell him to the Midianites, to the Midianites, and he's down, going down to Egypt. It's not looking good for good old Joe. And then we interrupt the story. And, and then what happens to him, by the way? He'll go down, he'll be in the pit, he'll come up again, he'll be in the pit, he'll come up again, and then what? He will be raised up, he'll become the viceroy of Egypt, he'll marry, he'll, ha- he'll marry a non-Jewish woman, have, have two children, right? And then his brothers will come down and so on and so forth, right? What do the pure reports say about that? Huh? What do the pure reports say about that? Well, good question. So, um... Back to the Judah story. In chapter 38, what happens, though, Maurice, in chapter 38? What happened in chapter In chapter 38, 38 Judah goes down. Okay. Judah marries a non-Jewish woman, too. Right. And Pew Report also had nothing to say about that either, which is also a good question. What happened to all these Jewish women? Who did they marry? Hmm? What happened to the Jewish women? Who did they marry? Well, it's not that they didn't marry Jewish women. It's not that they didn't marry Jewish women. It's not that they didn't marry Jewish women. It's the fact that they married women... They married women that earlier on in the Bible, explicitly, patriarchal uh, figures had s- explicitly prohibited heirs to the to the patriarchal lineage from marrying Canaanite women, right, or an Egyptian woman. Um, so, it's a specifically egregious moment actually when Judah breaks the tradition and marries a Canaanite woman. And then, if you follow chapter thirty-eight with the story of, of Tamar. Right? Two of his sons die. He doesn't want to give the third one to Tamar, his daughter-in-law. And Tamar takes the law into her own hands, dresses up as a prostitute. And Judah, whose wife has died and has mourned, and then he gets up from his mourning and he goes to, he goes to, graze, to graze, graze and gaze the sheep. And um, he sees a prostitute he's, he, and he, he, he petitions her and he solicits her and they have... Uh, they, they, she becomes pregnant through him and that whole story and so he realizes that he's wrong right? he, it's a case of mistaken identity he, he was trying to hide who he really was 
right? She hid who she really was, and then he seems like someone, in other words, he makes a claim on her and says, that sh- those children in your belly belong to someone else, not knowing that he was Kim, right? And then finally he claims it, and in claiming that, he becomes the father of two children that didn't realize that he had fathered. But it, in other words, the two children that he had lost are now given back to him at the end of chapter 38. What he thought he had lost is now given back to him. Sorry? This time they're Jewish. But, right. This time, they're, but, but, but they're giving back to him what he thought he lost. That's the point. What he thought he lost was given back to him. That which was lost was returned. And Joseph is the, is the quintessential lost jar of oil. The one who's been defiled. Right? He's in, he's literally lost to them. They don't even think, they don't know that he's alive. But in the end of his story, he is alive. And, and how many tribes are brought back to the to the to the twelve, how many tribes does Joseph now add to his father's children? Two, just like Judah. Judah is the one who is the foreshadow of the entire Joseph narrative, and as such, he knows that it's going to be okay. So, of course, Judah is the one who, have, in the end of the Joseph narrative, is the one who confronts his brother. Those who don't know the story, it'll be in two weeks from now. Judah will confront Joseph and call Joseph out. In other words, it's because of Judah's... There are a lot of things that Judah's going to do. I'm not going to go into all of them. But there are a lot of things that Judah does. And the most important one, of course, is that he takes responsibility to get for his younger brother Benjamin, whom his father does not want to release, just as Judah didn't want to release his third son because he was afraid he would be lost. So Judah knows. And Judah says to his father, don't worry, I'll take full responsibility to bring it back. And, if he, and I, take, I take it on myself. And of course, in that moment, he rectified the sin of Joseph and what they hadn't done, which is that they had not taken responsibility for their brother. And so Judah is the one that, that, that Jacob, after Joseph has already revealed himself to Judah and to his brothers, and sends back a caravan to his father to tell him that he's alive, and says, come down and meet me, he sends Judah back to establish... Um, it says in the text that he sends Judah ahead in, before everybody else to establish a living area in Egypt where they can live separated from the rest of the, the Egyptians and separate from, from uh, the idol worshippers. And the term for where he sent, he sent to the land of Goshen. Goshen. The Goshen. People know Goshen, New York? There's a Goshen in there's a Goshen in Egypt, and that was where the Jews lived in Goshen. And to say in biblical Hebrew you were sending someone to a place, you can say le as a prefix, the, le, the letter lamid. You can say I'm sending him le Goshen is to Goshen, or in biblical Hebrew you would say Goshna. Goshna is a way of saying to that place, to Goshen. And it just so happens to be that the letters Goshna, Gimel Shin, Nun, Hey are the four letters that appear around the dreidel. Mm. And he sent Judah ahead to Goshna. He sent him ahead to the land of the dreidels. Which means to say, and follow me here, and this will be the last little, this is like a little bit of a complex Torah, but I hope you're going to get the, the, the essence of it, is Judah's name out of all the four 
out of all the twelve children, Judah is the only one with God's four-letter name in it. Yehuda is Yud Hey Vav. It should have a Hey there, right? Yud Hey Vav Hey. But what's there instead? A Dalid. Yehuda. So it's essentially God's four-letter name Yud Hey Vav Hey plus a little Dalid in the right before the Hey at the end. Yud Hey Vav. Yehu Da Yehu. The Vav is, a, is an U in, in Yehuda's name. It doesn't have... Um, it has a... Um, no, what's it called? No, Chirik, a Shuruk. It's a Shuruk. Whatever it is. A Dat. A Dat. I can't remember. I'm not remembering my diktuk now. It's an U. It's a Vav with an U. Okay. Yehuda. So Yehuda has the four-letter name of God plus the letter Dalid, which of course could mean... So many things. He was the fourth child of Jacob. He, um, but I'd like to say that he represents in him the four sides of the dreidel. And that what he had was that no matter how you spun the dreidel, he had God's perspective, yud heh vav that from a larger, broader perspective, Judah was the one who could see the full picture in some way. He had been there, he could... He had that perspective of someone who, who had lived. It's like a doula, like a, a life doula. Like a therapist, a parent should be like a life doula. It's like when someone's giving birth, you know, the doula knows that it's going to be okay. You know it's going to be okay, but when you're giving birth, you think it's not going to be okay. And the doula is there to say, okay, breathe. There's nowhere to go. Birth is happening. You've done it before or maybe it's your first time, you're going to be okay. That's the perspective of Yehuda. That's the perspective of God. That's the perspective of the, of the Dalit that means Dula, maybe. Oh. The Dalit for Dula. And it's this, the dreidel perspective is, is that from above, when things are spinning, um, if you can hold that, right, that's a big perspective. That's, some people might call it a-perspectival, multi-perspectival, all kinds of fancy ways of saying you can see the whole gestalt. Right? And the last thing I'll say before Alina alights us is um, that there's also this trust that that what looks random is really has purpose. And that's a really hard one. And that's a really it's a really one of the most beautiful Talmudic statements um, is, no, it's not a Talmudic statement, one second. One of the most beautiful questions that I've ever heard about Hanukkah is, why is Hanukkah eight days? Why should we celebrate eight days of a miracle? Why is that a question? Why is that a good question? Because there's oil for one. There's enough oil for one day. Why do we celebrate eight days? Should be a seven-day holiday. Why eight days? They had enough oil. The, the Talmud says there was enough oil for one day. No, who wants it? Well, here I, I can offer a couple, but one plus seven. Yeah. One, but why? Why? Why would we celebrate the it first day? One, and then there was seven more. But why was it a miracle that it lit on the first day? It's not a miracle. But it was there. So the miracle is that we found it. Okay, that's one good interpretation. And what, what's another one? It was in the fire. 
It's a miracle that it wasn't defiled. It's also, right? It's miraculous. Wow, it, was defi- it wasn't defiled. What else? You guys are good. What else? Some ways it's sort of a metaphor that if you don't have feeling you have enough strength inside of you to do something, you really can persevere and really do something. It's a little bit of oil that was always supposed to last one day, end it up lasting enough. But then to produce more oil. So what's the miracle in the metaphor? That you do have enough of your strength and uh, light if you allow that light. If you allow it. So in other words, just lighting it, the fact that they had the, the, the courage to light it even though they didn't know it would, how long it would last. They just lit it. That's a miracle. Celebrating that. It's a symbol of hope. It's a symbol of hope. So here's, here's one of the most beautiful answers. And it's so obvious. So obvious. So the, somebody, I think it was a big, somebody just went, it's like an old hiccup, like when I'm from Yeshiva. I always have to remember who says stuff. It's like a weird thing. So I remember reading, someone quoted the Talmud that said, is a wonderful story in the Talmud where there's somebody who didn't have enough oil to light uh, Shabbos candles, and so he lit vinegar. And one of his and the friend of the rabbi who was watching him said to him, "What are you doing? You can't light vinegar. Vinegar doesn't light. What are you doing?" He said to him, "Who do you think decided that that oil would light?" He said, "Whoever decided that oil would light will tell vinegar to light too." <laughs> Did you love that? I love that. It's a great line from the Gemara. Gemara says, Like, so, so you call it the natural world. Is that another way of saying God? Yes. So this person said, the reason we light the first day is a miracle is because whenever oil lights, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle, you know? Wow, look at this. The first night, you say, to, you know, what am I going to say to my boys tomorrow night? I said, look, it's an oil. It lights. We take a match and it lights. Isn't that great? It'll be like, yes! <laughs> look, look at that. Do you light oil or you light candles? So another, I light oil. Oh. What do you mean? It's all about oil. Where do you get it? I also light oil on, uh, on Shabbos. Shabbos. Shabbos candles. <laughs> but there, are, there is... There are a lot of people who like who like to light dafka light wax. They they already they they don't, they make it doesn't make it hard at all anymore. Everything is prepackaged. It's like you know Amazon. They give you everything but uh, but the people to sing with you. <laughs> yeah, it's like I mean, like it's like you go into the West Side Judaic and they have them. They come in like a they come arranged and they have exactly the forty four the forty it's it's a. It should be really 36, but there's 44. One for, for the eight for the shamashes, and and they come in various sizes: small, medium, large, and they all have the wicks already in them, and that's great. No, 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 no mess, no fuss. And there are some Hasidic rabbis I read in a number of places that that used to like to light wax candles, because they said that the wax would splatter, and it would get it would melt all over the place, and then it would it would it re, it would remain. And since this is really, for the Rebbe's, this is considered to be the end of the high holiday period, really. For the Rebbe's, in the Hasidic teachings, in the mystical teachings, really, 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 even though Yom Kippur, right, and then Sukkot, and you have Hoshana Rabbah, and then you have Sukkot, ah, oh, it's over, it's over. No. They say it doesn't end until last day of Hanukkah. And last day of Hanukkah, um, 
two reasons are given for this. One is that to some degree, if you make it to Hanukkah, right, you really get to see the stuff of, of the commitments you made. Because between the Chagim and Hanukkah, there's a really dark month. It's Marcheshvan. There's a whole empty space there. And you have to really see what... Like, did you go right back to everything you were doing right before the Chagim? It's like it lasted only for, like, you know, like the weekend retreats that last until Wednesday. So you get back on Sunday and you're all gung-ho on your new diet until Wednesday and then Thursday and it's over. So there's something about, on a very practical level, like seeing it into the winter. The second reason given is that the opposite is that you really can't know what the rest of you will be like until you get strength from Hanukkah. The Hanukkah is going to come after the difficulty of leaving the high holidays and then you have Hanukkah and it gives you, it strengthens us to feel that we can go into the winter with the light of Hanukkah. Another reason that I love is that some of the language around Hanukkah is the exact same language as the language around Yom Kippur. So for example, the seal of the high priest is called the Chatima, which means a seal, Chotam. Some of you who are familiar with the, with the, the liturgy of, the, of Yom Kippur will know that the last service of Yom Kippur called Ne'ilah, we changed liturgically some of the words from may we be inscribed to, me, to may we be sealed. Uchtov becomes Vachatom, right? Chatima, the same seal at the end of Yom Kippur is the same word used when talking about the seal of the jar of oil, which is a very beautiful thing to think that um, that you know the, the deeper meanings of Hanukkah about finding light in the darkness, which is which is esteem. Hey Hanukkah, should I tell you some more things? Or you want to ask me? What I do you guys want to know? Before when you said about the Dalit in uh, Yehuda, Yehuda's name, I was thinking about that story you told about King David, so that the the Dalit was like not perfect. And then the verb was like the bridge, so it's like, in a sense, he's addressing what isn't perfect within this good Nevada. He's telling you that you can get through it somehow. But you might with us for That's what I said about David Amalek that he was DVD. Yeah. Right, Dalai Bab Dalai. And then the Bab was the bridge, and he was flawed, and that was what was so human about him. Right, he was poor before, because the word, the letter Dalit is also a word which means poor. Mm. Daloti, Dalit is poor. He was poor before he became king, and then after he became king, even with the vav in between, he was still imperfect and still poor. So it's a mitzvah for everybody to light their own Hanukkah candles, to have their own menorah. Unless you're, it actually, it's enough for a person to have one for his home, but there are some who have one for everybody, which is even nicer. There are 36 candles that are lit um, on Hanukkah. If you count it, it's 44 in the box, but that's because there are eight of these special lighters, shamash. So 36 is a very important number in Kabbalah, because 36 are the hours, according to the Kabbalah, that there was a primordial light that shone in the universe, and with that light, you could see from one end of the world to the other. 
and human beings only had 36 hours with that special light. The end of Shabbat, of the first Shabbat, it was taken away, it was hidden. The light was Orzarul at Sadiq, is the hidden light of creation. And the Baal Shem Tov said that the hidden light is hidden in, in the Torah. Or another way of saying that is that the hidden light is, since the Torah created the world, the hidden light is in the world, everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's hidden light. And there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. There are also 36, um, supposedly there are 36 hidden righteous people who keep the world uh, afloat. Lamed Vav Tzadikim. I wish I was a Lamed Vav Nick. Maybe you are. If I was, um, <coughs> I disqualified myself just now. You're not supposed to reveal yourself. If you want to, <laughs> I know, but it's a, sm- it's a small <laughs> consolation, my friend. I'd rather be one of the 36. Um, but thanks, Maurice. <laughs> so, um, a little bit more on the dreidel. Or we'll move on from the dreidel. We'll talk about, um, what should we talk about? Can I ask a question? Sure. It's slightly unrelated, but it's about Yehuda. It's about the twin boys that he had. And the, uh, the one sticks out his foot and they... His hand. His hand, rather, and they tie a red ribbon or something like that. Right. And a yellow ribbon around his oak tree. Exactly. <laughs> Is that also a redemptive story for his father? Is that a redemptive story for Jacob? That since Jacob was, you know, that's kind of the it's, it's the same story. The second shall be the uh, leader, and the first is not. And of the twins, and, and this, and, and by by tying that string around, maybe what they're doing is they're pre-identifying that. Uh, I'm just wondering. Yeah, I mean, it, it becomes a in in. There's no doubt that the Judah story in the Judah story, the Judah and Tamar, Tamar has twins, and the twins. Uh, at the moment of her birth, one of them reaches out a hand, and the the midwife ties a red ribbon around the hand of that one, and then the other one forces his way out, and he's named Peretz, the one who explodes, right? The one who spread it out, spread out, and the younger one, Zerach, was the one who had the hand with the. Uh, but Peretz becomes the one. In the tradition, who uh, who is the, the the lineage of the kingdom of David and becomes the leader of right? So um, so even though he was, it was exactly it's exactly the story of Jacob, where the younger one, the one who should have been younger, actually came out first, right? Even though Zerach put out his arm first, right? He he went and, and wanted to be second. Um, there's a lot of Torah on that. I'm there's gonna, a lot of Torah on that? Yeah, there's a lot of Torah on it. Is that why Kabbalah sent the Yusuf to go to Israel? Because they were that No, I think that's really just something else in the Talmud where it says that, that, that red wards off the evil eye. 
I'm not sure. I don't think that it's connected to that. There is a red string, though. It's interesting because the red string, the only other place where a red string appears is around the Yom Kippur ritual where, where a red string was used to see if the Jewish people's sins had been forgiven, it would turn white. So the only other place in the Talmud where it's really crimson, shani. Um, so I think it's a different thing. Um, okay. Stay with the cabinet. So the eighth. Yeah, the eighth, the eighth day. So the eighth day of Hanukkah has a special significance in Kabbalah. It's called Zos Hanukkah. It takes its name from the special reading from the Book of Numbers that is read on each day. And on the eighth day, it begins with Zot Hanukkah. It's, this is the rededication. So what does Hanukkah really mean? So it's like Zos Hanukkah, the eighth day, it's very, very. It's a very special day. We're gonna have our party on it, at a different location, by the way, than than, than it was advertised. Um, so Zos Hanukkah is. It's it's not just a rededication. It's a re-education. The word chinuch, to educate in Hebrew, means to empty something out. Right to empty out a scabbard is a chanichav. It's like where a sword was. It's an, an emptying out. It's creating a vessel. And so Hanukkah is really very much about creating vessels to receive a new way. Right? So the rededication of the temple meant that in some way Hanukkah is a holiday of, of re- it's, it's re-preparing. We focus a lot on the lights, but it's really about the vessels. It's about the, the container. It's really about the holding that happens. Chanukat Abayit means that it's been emptied of its previous meanings and now it is free to have a new meaning. That's what Chanukah means. It means rededicated, means redeployed, reestablished, reconfirmed, realigned. That's what Chanukah means. So, um, so the question is, how do you do that? How do we do that when it's really dark out? How do you do it when, how do you do it at the end of the month when the light of the moon is already waning, completely moving from a place of visibility to a place of invisibility? That's really when Hanukkah grabs you. It grabs us as, like, as the, right, we're about to hit the, the longest nights of the year. Uh, and then we'll have a period of deep darkness. So that's where Hanukkah kind of participates with the rededication of ourselves over the course of the winter. Um, yeah, that's what I got to say about that now. Um, yeah. I'd actually heard that um, Hanukkah was kind of built around that, that came first, that it was, you know, the period of time that was darkness, that they had to have some sort of holiday that celebrated life because otherwise people were depressed. They were in the darkest period of time, they were in the darkest right. months, and early is right. long. Saturnalia. Ever, right. Yeah. Saturnalia. Right. Yeah. You, you've spoken about that. The right. Right. Well, right. In a universal sense, Hanukkah is just a part of a larger, a larger theme of holidays that happen around the dark, the dark days of the, of the year, the longest days in the year. 
And in that sense, it's not different, but it's been given a whole other flavor. In the dreidel, when people play with the dreidel, yeah. each letter on each side, do you give meaning to like where it lands and what? Each sure. Side? Who wants to tell? Who wants to tell? Yes, yeah, the whole game. So you tell us, Sharon. There's four uh, four letters, and the it's nace, the miracle, gadol, large, haya, hey, that's the hey, haya was sham or po. Sham meaning there, or po means here. We don't say po. We don't say okay, po. Okay, so shas. Po shmo. hayashan. There was a great miracle there. So you, you spin the dreidel, and it lands on a nun. And there's money in the pot. You get the whole thing. Oh. Awesome. Right? Yeah. No, with nun you get nothing. She's a winner all the time. Yeah, I'm always the opposite. She wins. The, 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 nun, the nun is nothing. It sounds like nothing. Okay. That's the opposite is the gimel. The gimel is the whole pot. Ganze. The hay. Nish ganze. Hair. And sham. That's Max. Max is a specialty. That's the Max specialty. Now, so this is a this is a this is a, a Hanukkah always happens in, in the middle of the week. It's a very it's a we would say it's a vachadika holiday. It's very much a weekday holiday. Hanukkah is it's not uh, it's not um, it's as whole as it gets. It's as secular as it gets, right? And in many ways, before Purim comes along, and Purim was before, but I'm saying Purim is not until later in the year, Hanukkah is very much the, the real, the beauty of the chasimah, of the, of the chatimah, of the, of the seal. Because you go from the heights of Yom Kippur where you're so disconnected from reality, you go into the depths of Sukkot, but Sukkot still has a kind of festive, you know, it's still, it's a harvest. We still have, it's, it's, it's a holiday, right? You make Kiddush. You don't do anything on Hanukkah. It's as vach, it's very vachtik. It's like very, it's very weak there, you know? And um, in many ways, it represents the Kabbalists who, I guess, most important marching orders, which is to sanctify the whole, that which is, which is, not ordinary that which is not yet holy right to make the ordinary into a miracle to make the ordinary extraordinary that's what that's what Hanukkah is saying so in many ways it's very much connected to since I want to talk a little bit about Shabbos since there are going to be people going to be wanting to know wasn't there a class on Shabbos and there is a there is a there is always a Shabbos in Hanukkah which is important can I just ask one question? As always, a Rosh Chodesh. Just to sure. go back to Alina's question about the dreidel game. So, is there more? Is there a Kabbalistic understanding? I mean, my understanding is that they created this game because the Jews weren't allowed to study Torah, and so when they would come and check, they would take out their dreidel and play this gambling game, so that it was a way of hiding Torah. So, my question is. 
It's brought that in a lot of places. How do you want to? That's brought that in a lot of places. I didn't. I didn't want to tell that one, but but it's brought that in a lot of places. Um, it could be. Could be true. Could be true. So yes, you can gamble. Um, Giving gifts is that like a secular copy? Well, before you get to gifts, I just want to know yeah. the game and the dreidel so the game, and the hiding and right. the Torah and the. So listen. So if you come back to the to the, the Torah about Yehuda and Goshna. And Jacob sent the, the Judah man ahead to Goshna. And so, you know, you know, one could easily argue that... One could easily argue that playing that game, playing the dreidel, is itself a cosmically significant moment. It wasn't just that they were hiding from playing from Torah by playing the dreidel. That, in other words... That um, like the Hasidim say that this is it's, it's a it's a way of saying we believe that God is running the world. Is it a divination? And that tool? and no, not as a divination tool, but that as that just as Judah was sent into the narrow place called Egypt in order to establish there in that place some kind of some kind of goshna, some kind of dreidel, some kind of saying. We trust that in all of the different ways that the world is working, that God is running. God fear the veld. God is making the world run. So too, we're playing with this top. You know, it's it's the same way. That you know, we know that we're in God's hands, and we're just imitating God, right? We're the way that the world works. God is spinning the world, and you know. So, you know, I haven't seen anything else. I have seen that uh, that the, that they used to take their tops out and they used to play with it, and it was a way of saying we're not learning Torah because Torah was was completely prohibited. But they were. Okay. Like later day Advent. What is that? A later day Advent. Yeah. So Shabbos, everybody. Before I go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send. We're gonna send everybody home. Oh, early. I was gonna say early, but it's actually. Eight twenty-five. Eight twenty-five. Um, I feel badly because there are a lot of people that aren't here from the Shabbos class. We'll just put it up as a, we'll put it up as a, as a special, Hanukkah year. I just say that we were up to the third stanza in the Chadodi. You know, I'll talk about this, God willing, um, that we have in class next week. Yeah. I don't know, is next week something? It's up to you. It's the day before our Hanukkah. It's Hanukkah. It's Tuesday Shabbos. Right, Tuesday Shabbos at the Shimkos. Tuesday Shabbos yeah, we'll yeah, okay. Like, right? No, no, I want to. Yeah, I'm at home. Um, it's this this line. The stanza is very much, very much about. It's very much about Shabbos. I'll get into it ne- about uh, Hanukkah next week. I just say one thing: that what Shabbos is to time, the base of Mikdash, the temple was to space, and that. The destroyed Jerusalem. If you look at if you look at Lachadodi, as essentially there are nine stanzas, and for Kabbalists that's a very significant number because there are nine Svirot, not including Keter. Keter is the Svirah that's kind of like beyond yeah. the formless. It's beyond the form. The form. It's the formless of the formless. Keter is Lachadodi the Krakala Peneisha Bat Nekabalah. Those seven words. Lachadodi the Krakala Peneisha Bat Nekabalah. Those seven words are keter. 
Keter is the formless that is the, the ground of all of the other nine spherot. So that's why it ref- the refrain repeats before and after each one of the, t- of the nine spherot. You say the Chadodi before you say Shemor Zachor, there's Keter. You say it after, you say Shemor Zachor, Keter. Then you say, right, the next one, Likrat Shabbat, which is Kivura, right? And then there are nine more, right? So when you arrive, when you think about the Svirot, if you, if you think about the stanzas, not just in terms of Svirot, but in terms of themes, the middle seven have to do with, not Shabbat, but with Jerusalem. So, or the middle six, I should say. It's two, it's, it's three, three, four, five, six... I think it's the middle, it might be the middle five, actually, are all having to do with Jerusalem, the fallen and broken Jerusalem, the shattered Jerusalem. If you look at the, the stanzas on Friday night, we begin by saying, we talk about Shabbat. We talked about that. Observing and remembering, right? That's all about Shabbat, Shabbat, right? Time. The second stanza, Likrat Shabbat. To, to go out to Shabbat, let us go. Let us go greet Shabbat. She is the source of all blessing. We did this last week. She is anointed. She has been appointed from beginning, right? From the top, top, top. That's in time. Shabbat is the end goal of creation in time. And then all of a sudden, dramatically, in, in verse 3, we begin to talk about Jerusalem. The holy sanctified city, the city of kingship, of sovereignty. Arise and leave the the wasteland, the hafecha, that which has been overturned. Rav shevet For too long have you been wallowing in the valley of tears or the valley of thorns. And he will, someone will, have compassionately compassion you. Right? Bestow upon you compassion. So the shift now is from time to space. And in Kabbalah, the destroyed Jerusalem is like the six days of the week. And the restored Jerusalem, the restored Jerusalem is tantamount to Shabbat. And so the, the vision of a, a day that is completely Shabbat is also the vision of a, of a, of a rebuilt Jerusalem. Right? And, um, and it doesn't matter that Jerusalem is, is now, has ATMs on every corner and you can... <laughs> Right, Wi-Fi, you know, so it's the most hooked-up city. For the Kabbalist, um, the the world itself is unredeemed, and an unredeemed world is like a, is like a, a desolate Jerusalem. It's like Sodom. We'll talk about that next week. How, in this really odd verse that we say every Friday night, I've been saying it for forty-four years. There's a connection between the vision of Jerusalem and the vision of Sodom. It's really wild. Like Sodom is like the antithesis of Jerusalem. Sodom is the sinful city that was destroyed, that was completely, you know, we kind of God purposefully destroyed Sodom, but God also purposefully destroyed Jerusalem in our myth. In other words, the 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 poet here is going to draw an analog between a city that didn't fulfill its its promise in Sodom and also in Jerusalem, and then a week weekdays. Time itself 
that is unredeemed, that is, doesn't live, it isn't fully on fire, isn't fully lit. And that's the jar of oil. And that's Hanukkah. And that's why Hanukkah always, always begins in a weekday. It's always got to be in the middle of the week. It has to begin in the darkness of the week and, and then elevate it. It never comes out on Friday. It doesn't ever come out first night on Shabbos. It always has a Shabbos in it. And, always, and it also always has a new moon in it. Hanukkah has got all of your nutritional requirements. <laughs> it's got all of your food groups. It's got every spiritual requirement. My friend uh, Amichai has been doing this blog. I'll just do a plug for him on our, on our own thing here. Uh, it's called Illuminate. Illuminate. And he's using all of these like dedic- rededicate, reverberate, reconsecrate, uh, right? Recalibrate. Um, you know, to to illustrate, you know, that the the Hanukkah can be about all of those things and uh, such a wonderful thing. Latkes and Sivivon and and in Israel Sufganiyot, all things having to do with jelly and, and surprises that are on the inside of things you bite into. Mm. It's a good thing. So I wanna raise up as the last Kavanah what, what what was said here in the Hevra tonight. I loved very much what Brian said about um, that the great miracle of the first night of Hanukkah is that people even made an effort at all. At all. That, you know, what it, what it took, what it took, what it took for Rosa Parks to get on the back of a bus and, and say, you know, that looks like a cruise of oil right there in that seat. You know? Or Jackie Robinson, or our own heroes, you know. Hmm? And Branch Rickey. And Branch Rickey. And those are all small examples, but we can imagine people now in the Philippines who, uh, in their own way, have to find light in darkness, in literal darkness. And everywhere in the world, you know, we're just, uh, we're a couple of weeks away from, uh, we're only two weeks away from this Friday, I think, uh, We'll be two weeks away from the Newtown yard site. Mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about that recently because of the 26 people, you know, God's holy name is the number 26 in it. Mm-hmm. The four-letter name of God is 26 in Gematria. But yod heh is 26. I was thinking about um, how do you, you know, I remember it was a Friday that... Um, it was the day that Lynn Schneider was uh, buried, mm-hmm. and I remember, and I, and I remember what I said, and I remember Parsha, and we're coming up on it, and, and I really, you know, you know, maybe you never find a jar of oil in places like that ever, but uh, people there every day are making these big decisions to to uh, to find one jar of oil that hasn't been defiled, one one thought, one hope, one something that needs to be lit. And I'm calling on the community. You know, I have, we haven't decided, I haven't decided yet what, what I think we should do as a community to commemorate that day. But I said last year, I remember I said last year publicly that I thought that we should have a fast day. And um, Shabbos this year, so there's nothing, we can't fast on Shabbos. Maybe we'll fast on, on the Thursday night and Friday. 
Some people used to fast on Erev Shabbat, to go into Shabbat hungry. So I think that um, I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about that a lot. And um, so that's it. To all the people that weren't here, we missed you. <laughs> and uh, we combined a little bit of Shabbos, a little bit of Hanukkah. And, um, and there's a lot more to say. So maybe next week, you know, maybe next week we'll continue. I said we're going to do Mikdash Melech, but maybe we'll continue with more Hanukkah next week. And then a little bit more of the Mikdash Melech, you know, we'll do a little bit. And of course, last thing I will say, last, 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 last thing, is that of course Hanukkah and Thanksgiving are completely, completely, completely connected. Because of course Judah's name means thankfulness. And it, in all of the prayers for Hanukkah, it's all about lehodot ulehalea, like to give thanks. Right, that word appears over and over again. And in Kabbalah, for those of you who are following in your, in your Kabbalese, it's a very much a hod holiday. Hod is the energy of, of the high priest, of Aaron, who wore the eight garments of the high priest. And uh, the high priest was the one whose oil was found. And it's obviously a rededication of that function internally, also the high priest within. So I just wanted to connect you to hod, which is also toda, Yehuda. And uh, I wish you that, um, that your tofurkey or your, to- or your turkeys, whatever it is that you're going to do, it's a really beautiful holiday. It's a Jewish holiday, Thanksgiving. <laughs> Amen. 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 Amen.